This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Open enrollment under the Affordable Care Act starts next week. It's a critical time for people who buy their own insurance and for those who get a subsidy. This is also an uncertain time for Obamacare itself, with President Trump committed to fulfilling his promise of undoing it. We're going to hear now from Kevin Patterson, CEO of the state's exchange, Connect for Health Colorado. It's where about 200,000 Coloradans get their health insurance. And uh, welcome to the program, Kevin. Thank you. Let's start with the president's decision earlier this month to stop payments to insurance companies. These payments bring down deductibles and co-pays for low-income people. We're talking billions of dollars here. Uh, What does the end of so-called cost-sharing reductions mean for people who buy their insurance through the exchange? Well, I really appreciate that question. I think uh, what the simplest way to explain it is it's instead of it coming through the federal government for the cost-share reduction, it's now baked into the rate. And so that that assistance will still be there and available for folks that fit um, that cost-share reduction profile, and they will be able to get the the assistance It's just now would be paid through the ratepayers uh, in Colorado versus the federal government. That is to say other insured people will absorb that cost for those low-income people or those low-income people can expect that their insurance will increase as well. No, what they will see, everybody pays for it through the rate. So it's it's normalized over the entire rate ba- rate-based system. What does that mean for the cost of insurance in Colorado? So for us, um, what it meant was we had to change the rates um, last week with the help of the Division of Insurance. Uh, It was an additional six percentage points that the rates were raised to fund the cost share reductions at a state-based level. Okay, 6% more expensive for insurance in Colorado. Correct. Right? Correct. And and to be clear, that is borne by everyone across the board, even those who benefit from CSRs? It, it's on average, so on average. It, but it is, it is across. Okay. So that is a direct effect of the president's decision to end those payments. Correct. Okay. Can you say what 6% means on average for someone who's insured on the exchange? So it, it becomes a percentage of a percentage, so it's a difficult thing to explain. Okay. But let, let me let me say it this way. Because the cost share reduction came in and rates go up, that also means the advanced premium tax credit goes up. And so what we are looking at now is we've looked at reports that, that are coming from the Division of Insurance and looking at the Wakely report, they call it. Um, and we know that the second lowest cost silver, which is where we kind of level set everything. A silver plan. A silver plan on the road plan. Yeah. And that has increased uh, by average of 29%. And so that will mean that there will be an additional $216 per month for the advanced premium tax credit on average for folks to, to share. So, so you're saying that that's not necessarily coming out of people's pockets directly because the federal subsidies will help defray some of that cost. Exactly. If you qualify for them. That is the big part of it. If you're between 200 and 400% of poverty, it's great. If you're above 400%, it is a larger cliff for you this time. That's right. There's not as much or any federal support for your increases there. Exactly. So that is how rates could both be increasing and yet people's out-of-pockets decreasing because the federal subsidies play a role here. Yes. Okay. Uh, in August, the Trump administration said it was cutting the Affordable Care Act's advertising budget by 90%. Also, for 35 states, including Colorado, that use the federal website, in addition to perhaps their own state website, so healthcare.gov, the open enrollment period has been cut from three months to six weeks. 
What is the effect in Colorado of something like that? So we do actually have a little bit of a buffer. Um, as a state-based marketplace, we can make decisions around what our open enrollment period looks like. And so what we've done is now we still have November to December 15th for folks that want their coverage to start January 1st, but we're able to continue our open enrollment until January 12th, and they will be able to start their coverage February 1st. So that gives folks those additional weeks to sign up for health insurance. More flexibility on the state exchange than if you go through healthcare.gov. Exactly. Now, the the second point is around um, the advertising. So as a state-based marketplace, what we saw last year, because we're not on healthcare, We have our own website. We saw just the announcements of the open enrollment dates, and they typically were on large national platforms, NFL games typically, or or when people would see them. Uh, That part is what is my understanding still will be there. But since we didn't really have the, the federal advertisements last year, we're doing a lot more on the ground. And so we will go through local community papers, um, do radio like we're doing here. Those are the ways that we get our message to our our enrollees. Do you think fewer people will be aware of the message this year? Boy, um, I, it's hard to handicap. I think the confusion is what is is worries me more than the message is that they won't be able to figure out what the message really is. And so for us, you know, our the, message... The, the folks I'm might sorry, be hesitant to sign up for insurance because they see so much uncertainty. Well, we saw, we, we thought we would have saw it last year where people got really nervous and they were like, oh, the Affordable Care Act is gone. And we actually saw an increase in enrollment. And so I think there's a little bit of fear in people that are saying, well, I better sign up while I still can. Um, so we think that that we're hoping that will get people to continue to enroll. But I think, you know, we also are concerned about rates going up. Will you price people out of the market? So it, it's those are the two factors that, that concern us. And it's hard to say exactly how it's going to going to go, but we have uh, assumed flat enrollment for our budget. Ah, interesting. Okay. This is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kevin Patterson. He's CEO of the state's healthcare exchange, Connect for Health Colorado, where about 200,000 Coloradans get their insurance. We're speaking ahead of open enrollment next month. When it's, uh, pardon me, next week. Well, which is next month. Those are both true statements. Exactly. Uh, I want to note that at the end of September, federal funding expired for the Children's Health Insurance Program, or CHIP, in Colorado. Uh, that program here covers about 75,000 children and 800 pregnant mothers. If they lose that coverage, would they qualify at the same price for insurance through the exchange? They qualify the price would be what would be different for them. And so higher, chip, most chip, likely. Yeah, chip covers a lot more of the out of pocket costs and uh, things that typically keep them from accessing care. Um, and then there's a, the monthly premium would be different for, for them because they it's more of a Medicaid um, payment process for, versus on the qualified health plan, which is what typically people see in private insurance. Do you expect folks who are covered by chip right now to migrate, start migrating to the exchange? Yeah, I, I think that we do expect that. We have increased our uh, capacity just in case that 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 does that actually does happen. Um, but we're we're just concerned because we know that you know the price point might keep them from actually accessing the care, even though they qualify. Because uh, it's going to be more expensive. For they them. they will have more out of pocket costs. That and is true. That is if the chip program uh, is not extended, if if the funding for it is extended in Washington, correct, which remains a question. Last Friday, you sent an email to stakeholders with the subject line. A few things are clear in Colorado. What are you certain of right now? 
we're still here. I, I think that's the part that is can just want to make sure folks are, are there. At least we your, know. Your mere presence is the only certainty. <laughs> I, I, that's what I can control. I, I don't get upset about the weather and I don't get upset about public policy in, in Washington, D.C. I, I think what we're trying to do is just stay focused to make sure that we're uh, serving our citizens, serving our clients, making sure folks have access to the programs where they qualify. Uh, as I've said to folks in every corner of the state, we are still the federal law of the land. We will continue to move forward, uh, making access, affordability, and choice. Those things are important for our mission, and we'll continue to do that. Affordability, though, is in question at this moment. It, it is. It's always a big issue in health insurance. And, you know, for us, it, it again, our one of our main purposes is to make sure that we're administering the tax credit. And and for folks that qualify for it, um, you know, these rate increases are are mitigated in a lot of ways because of that tax credit. And so we just want to make sure that folks aren't leaving money on the table. And while they hear all of this affordability, all these things that are out there, the confusion, we just want them to make sure they come in, stop for a moment, shop for the, cl- uh, the, the services that we have and see if they can enroll. Do you find that there are many people who don't realize they're eligible for help? We we have survey data that people overestimate, um, underestimate rather, the qualifications. They think that they would make half of what they actually qualified for. And so folks typically think you need to be, you know, making $40,000 a year to qualify as a family of four, where it's actually over double that. And so what we want to make sure people do is come in and look to see if they qualify. So on Sunday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he would bring a bipartisan health care bill sponsored by Senators Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and Patty Murray uh, of Washington to the Senate floor if, quote, I know President Trump would sign it, unquote. Uh, The proposal would keep those cost sharing reductions, which bring down the cost of uh, co-pays and deductibles for low income folks. Um, what what is the flow of healthcare information right now between Washington and Colorado? Like, how quickly are you apprised of the ebbs and flows? Because that that flow has since ebbed. By the way, <laughs> that's that's a good way to say it. So uh, there's constant communication between our office, our federal partners. Uh, we also are a part of a an association of health plans and um, other exchanges that have a. a a lobbying um, presence there in D.C. because it just changes so quickly. We felt like we needed to know exactly what those conversations are are happening. Um, I've been to Washington more times than I want to admit uh, because you just have to be there to to actually be in that conversation. So it's taken a lot of time, but I think it's really important right now. I've asked you this before to wrap up. Uh, Will there be a need for the exchange after this year? I certainly see a, a a larger need, actually. And I think, you know, what we're trying to get to is health literacy on top of health affordability. And so from from my perspective, I actually see that we have an important role to play, uh, working with our communities to do the things that work for them uh, and, and the folks that live in Colorado. So from every corner of the state, I think we have a role. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Kevin Patterson is CEO of Connect for Health Colorado, the state's insurance exchange. He joined us ahead of open enrollment which begins next week. Now your feedback in loud and clear. 
The renegade lunch lady joined us earlier this month. Chef Ann Cooper is with Boulder Valley Schools, and in cafeterias there, she has ditched processed foods in favor of dishes made from scratch. She has also become a national voice on healthy school meals. Our interview sparked a lot of conversation on social media. For Diane Talbot of Minnesota, it was a reminder of the school lunches she ate as a kid. Writing on the Colorado Public Radio Facebook, This is how it was when I went to school. By 11 a.m., the great smells from the kitchen drifted through the building. Patricia Kennedy of Greeley wrote that it took her back to the early days of teaching, when, quote, all school lunches were from scratch. They were delicious and nutritious. Earlier this month, I spoke with a physician about doctors in Colorado trying to reduce opioid addiction in their patients. Several hospital emergency rooms and freestanding ERs offer patients alternatives like topical therapies and muscle relaxants. We got this comment from Joel Feinstein of Chicago. I do not understand why there is no mention by the doctor or the interviewer of cannabis in a discussion about reforming the ways doctors deal with pain. There is good research on cannabis reducing the need for opiates, and there should be more. But there seems to be a big silence. Well, Joel, it's an issue CPR News has plans to cover in the very near future, next week, in fact. Thanks for raising the point. If we are on point or we just missed it, let us know. Find all the ways to get in touch at cprnews.org slash connect. When we come back, Seattle tells us what having an Amazon headquarters there has meant for the city, good and bad. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. By now, you probably know Amazon is looking for a place to build a second headquarters, and Metro Denver is in the running. There are strong feelings about that. Yes, it'll bring 50,000 lucrative jobs, but there's the increased traffic and potential for higher housing costs. If only there were a place we could turn to see how all this might turn out. There is Seattle, where Amazon's first headquarters is. In a new podcast called Primed, our colleagues at KUOW Public Radio lay out how Amazon has changed their city. Let's turn things over to reporters Carolyn Adolph and Joshua McNichols. So we were going to call this podcast Relentless. And if you think that's a comment about how we feel about Amazon, hold up. Check out Relentless.com. Okay, I'm actually going to do this. Relentless.com. Go. What do you see? I see Amazon's homepage. So here's why. Back in the early 90s, before Amazon was called Amazon, Relentless was one of the names that they considered. Not many people liked this name. (laughs) I wonder why. But Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, really liked it. He liked it so much, he never let it go. And that says something about the kind of company that Amazon was always going to be. Non-stop, always innovating doesn't quit. Relentless. I'm Carolyn Adolph. I'm Joshua McNichols. This is Primed. What happens when Amazon comes to your town? We're reporters at KUOW in Seattle. We've been covering the crazy growth Seattle has had over the last five years. Amazon has been at the center of it. It's booming. Um, I'm doing pretty well here. Everything is new and upcoming. It's, you know, like you get a new toy, it's exciting. (laughs) We wanted to preserve it 
but the uh, developers out-bulldozed everybody that was involved. Amazon grew up here in Seattle. Today, it's one of the biggest tech companies on the planet. Now Amazon wants to grow a second headquarters somewhere else. It's surprised cities across America are salivating over. This is a game changer. It would be transformative. The stakes are huge. $5 billion in economic benefits, 50,000 jobs that pay on average 100 grand. Cities are bidding to become the next Seattle. It's kind of like bidding to host the next Olympics. Where there's a lot of high fives and intoxication around winning. And then perhaps over the long term, a lot of economists may be saying this wasn't a great deal for the host city. This podcast is going to explore all the ways a huge tech employer like Amazon impacts a city. The traffic, the subtle changes in culture. Someone likened it to an explosion of money. There's both prosperity and displacement. But before we get to that, we want to explore something that even we have trouble getting our heads around sometimes. How big is this company? And why is Amazon, with this stratospheric growth, different from other big companies? Okay, so Amazon is obsessed with size, right? Mm -hmm. They named themselves after the Amazon River, the biggest river in the world. Then they named their digital assistant Alexa after the world's largest library. The Library of Alexandria, which burned down, by the way. But back to this prize. How big is it? How big is big? Well, you know the new World Trade Center building? Yeah. Well, you could fit three of those in Amazon's new headquarters. But it's not just the size, it's also money. In this new city, it's going to spend $5 billion on buildings and $25 billion on employees. Billions upon billions. Hey, you've got it! You've got the last golden ticket! But it's not just about the space or the money, it's also about the jobs, right? They're talking about bringing 50,000 jobs to this new city. And that's just the start. Look what happened here in the Seattle area. For every one job at Amazon right now, another seven popped up. That's how big a boom we got. Anyway, the opportunity's huge. So you've heard the hype about the big contest and how big this company is. We can tell you what something that big looks like in Seattle and what it's done here. Our headquarters here is exactly the same size as the one Amazon will put somewhere else. Amazon occupies 8.1 million square feet of office space in Seattle. That is twice the size of Disneyland. And the Seattle Times points out its footprint is more than twice as large as any other companies in any other city. There's actually a place where you can see Amazon's footprint on Seattle. See you in Seattle at the big... The top of the Space Needle. Hi, two for the Space Needle, please. When it was built for the 1962 World's Fair, this is how people thought of the future. And here we are. It's cold out here. <laughs> and of course, yeah, of course it's raining. There's cranes everywhere. Yeah, I'm just going to count all the cranes I can see from here. One, two, three, six, six seven, seven, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fifteen. Below us is this glittering new neighborhood full of new buildings. 33 of those buildings belong to Amazon. And where there aren't new buildings, there are half-built buildings, or there are holes in the ground with cranes hovering over them, waiting for new buildings. They've dug up so much ground in this area, Joshua, that they found a mammoth tusk. (laughs) No way. (laughs) True. 
Amazon's growth here in Seattle has done more than just change the look of the city. It's changed people's lives. People used to move to Seattle because it was an affordable corner of the country. Here's how it is now. The median house costs nearly three quarters of a million dollars, and a two-bedroom apartment is easily over two thousand dollars a month. Here's one reason why the cost of housing is so high: we can't build it fast enough. Fifty-seven people move here every day, and we're only building eighteen new places to live every day. The cost of housing has pushed a lot of people out of Seattle, even as new people come in. It's also contributing to the city's homelessness problem. We had homelessness before, but now Seattle has the third largest homeless population in the U.S. You can hear people's frustration with how big Amazon has gotten here and how fast. At the farmers market right by Amazon, people had a lot of complaints. Traffic, street traffic, 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 traffic. Did they hear that? Traffic. The people that. Get hired to come here. I think they make a lot more money, and the rest of the people that have to commute in to work here aren't making enough. Seattle used to be full of fishermen, and Boeing engineers, and Microsoft employees. They're still here, but it's Amazon workers who now dominate the city. In Amazon's neighborhood, the shiny new center of Seattle, you can see how the city caters to them. You see the signs of the tech wealth. There's a Tesla dealership and six kinds of oysters at the corner grocery, and doggy daycares where pets can get blueberry facials. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of high-end restaurants and bars. Feeding a lot of Amazon workers. A lot of Amazon's workers are thirty-something males, by the way. The newest and shiniest landmark here in the heart of Amazonia is the Employee Lounge. It's still under construction, but it's not like any lounge you have ever seen before. There it is. There it is. The domes. The yes, spheres. The spheres. Oh my gosh! You can see the palm trees. Amazon's lounge is a greenhouse inside three giant glass domes linked together. Jeff Bezos wanted them to be iconic, like the Space Needle. Some people call them Jeff's balls. <laughs> Oh look! Look, there's a plant coming in. Workers are wheeling a tropical plant into one of the spheres. <laughs> and the workers are giving us weird looks. I'm, and it's going to be taken into this private world, like this world for Amazon workers. That's right. It's kind of like the Palace of Versailles before the French Revolution. King Louis the Fourteenth had these greenhouses full of orange trees, so the French nobility could eat oranges. They were a luxury back then. Well, thank you very much, Professor. <laughs> Here, I was just thinking about how cold and damp it is in Seattle all winter, and how much I would love to just be able to go someplace warm every day. Yeah. So we've been talking about how Amazon has changed Seattle, and about this contest, and how big it is. How basically cities all over the country want to win this thing. Well, that's what the cities want to get out of it. What does Amazon want to get out of it? Well, we put in a call to Jeff Bezos to see if he could tell us. We haven't heard from him yet. <laughs> He's a busy guy. Yeah. So we talked to Scott Galloway instead. He's an NYU professor and an author of a new book called The Four about the four major tech giants: Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Google. He's not surprised at all that cities want Amazon to come to them. First of all, Amazon's doing really cool stuff. To give you a sense of the scope of it, they're now Amazon is now leasing 757s and buying tractor trailers, and has filed patents for warehouses in the sky, and smaller drones that can reassemble as larger drones and 
deliver larger packages. And that's why so many cities want to play with them. They want to be part of the tech economy. This says to the rest of the world that our city gets it. Our city is part of the innovation class, and our city is now a super city and playing with the big boys. This is this is the best municipal prize offered in a long, long time. So there's a huge opportunity here for some city, even with all the complications that you and I know about. It's still a huge prize, especially for Cinderella cities like Detroit. They could really use a fairy godmother about now. But let's take a step back from this for a minute. I can tell you right now who is going to win this contest. Right now? Right now. Who? Amazon. And it's just not me who says so. Here's Scott Galloway. Well, what this competition about is about is uh, continued optimization of traditional media to basically dominate their airwaves and their pages with all about Amazon, mostly about how amazing they are. I mean, this is what we're talking about now. We're talking about Amazon in the context of literally (laughs) Olympic-like Uh, awards to cities. So one, they could have done this quietly and just announced it, but they don't. They create a media frenzy, uh, and they're probably going to get tremendous uh, irrational offers, and they can take the best offer and then take it to the city that I believe they've already decided they want to be in and say, this is yours to lose, just match these terms. So he's saying the point of Amazon's competition is to play cities off of each other? Well, cities and states are basically telling Amazon how much in tax incentives they're willing to give up. And maybe they're telling them about special deals they could get on big pieces of property. And we recently got some insight into this. We had a senior Amazon executive say the Seattle region had no chance of winning HQ2. And after we reported that, Amazon emailed us to say, hey, we'll still consider all offers. And that tells us that Amazon wants to see all the offers there can be. So they can use the information they receive somehow. It's like a big poker game, except cities have just shown their hands to Amazon. So what did we learn from all this? Amazon knows what it wants. And for the cities that want to be HQ2, the stakes are all about whether they'll win this thing or not. They're going big in their offers in the hopes that they'll win. But for Amazon, it's different. Amazon wants to know all it can about every city that even considers itself eligible. It's information that they'll be able to use to fuel their ambitions. That's right. There is a master plan. But it's Amazon's. Whatever city does win this thing, they need to keep that in mind. Joshua McNichols and Carolyn Adolph, hosts of Primed, What Happens When Amazon Comes to Your Town. We're airing this occasional podcast as Metro Denver vies for HQ2. And your questions about Amazon will inform what this series and CPR's coverage sound like from here on out. Join a new community on Facebook, KUOW Primed, and we'll get your questions answered. This will also be a topic we bring up later this week in our regular conversation with Colorado's Governor John Hickenlooper. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A man named Cal Golden was one of this country's best-known square dance callers. Everybody happy! 
on to you, partner. And the lady on the left. And the old John hands in the circle of the south. A little, little moonshine in your mouth. And the other way back. Golden died in 2012. And along with other pioneers of dance in the West, his story is archived in an unusual library, a dance library at the University of Denver. It just inducted some living legends, and curator Catherine Crow joins us. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to have you with us. I'm fascinated by what it means to have a library that documents what's fundamentally movement. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. But first off, a little bit more about Cal Golden, who served with the U.S. Army Air Corps in the 40s, got his start calling dances while he was stationed in Colorado Springs, I guess. He was. He, um, I picked him in specific because he's kind of a character, as you could kind of tell from the, the calls that we yeah. just played. Um, and he, um, <laughs> I don't know if, if you're uh, familiar with uh, Nudie Cohen, who um, was a sort of famous suit maker, mostly for country music in Nashville. But he um, he had he made what he called kind of nudie suits, which were these like Elvis wore them in the in the late sixties. So okay. you can kind of get a, an image. Um, Cal wore like essentially that and um, like bedazzled, literally bedazzled overalls. That's one of the things that we have in our collection. That you know he's sort of over the top. Um, you know, MC, really, like callers are the people who keep the party going. And who I suppose are really itinerant going from square dance to square dance, right? He was to some degree. So he was in the Air Force. He was stationed in Germany for quite some time. Um, so he did a lot of entertainment um, while he was in the Air Force. He met uh, a lot of celebrities, a lot of the photographs that we have in our collection, like people like Frank Sinatra Jr. and um, folks who would come to entertain the troops. And uh, he was one of the kind of uh, again, he kept the party going in Germany, too. And that happened after the war as well, that yes. he called yeah. for many years after, in fact. Yes. Uh, dance can be so ephemeral if you if you think about it purely as movement. So do you think that it often gets lost to history? I think it can. I mean, usually the way that dance gets communicated from dancer to dancer is is literally the company will bring in the last principal dancer who danced that role and they will teach the next principal dancer. Hmm. So in a way, it's kind of like an oral history, but with your body. Um, so documentation of dance is a real challenge because what you're essentially trying to document is um, muscle memory. Exactly. You're trying to document muscle memory. It's not like we have, you know, a 3D body scan of every single person who's done every single role. So, you know, what we have is written notes. We have uh, video. We have photographs. We have all kinds of ways of trying to do that. And as you say, you have material related to dance. So it might be a dancer's costume or mm -hmm. outfits or something like that. Yep. Absolutely. And costume designs, set designs, anything that could really help not just the company, but anyone who's doing research, try and understand the kind of as three dimensionally as possible that work. This collection is not just about people who've passed away. The library honors living legends, as I hinted at. You record their oral histories. Uh, this is a project that started more than a decade ago after the unexpected death of a Colorado ballet co-founder. Uh, who was she and why did that inspire you to begin preserving the history of living legends? So this predates me, so I can't 
really take credit for it. Um, Joan Brown, who was our dance library's president for quite some time um, and is deeply embedded in the Colorado dance community, when Friedan passed away in 2004. This is from the Colorado Ballet. Yes, from the Colorado Ballet. So she and Lillian Cavillo co-founded Colorado Ballet. Uh, Lillian, thankfully, uh, lived considerably longer. But when Friedan passed away, Joan and the rest of the board, including Glenn Giffen, our former curator, um, said, you know, we really need to capture these people's histories while they're still living um, and and while they can still tell us about their contributions to dance. This was something of a sobering reminder that life can be short and it's important to document those stories while you still can. Mm-hmm, so th- this year, the living legends of dance include a ballerina with the Colorado Ballet, who mm-hmm. recently retired, Maria Messina, a Broadway tap dancer who lives here now. This is Jean Gebauer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the first legends was singer and dancer Vera Sears, who has since passed away. Uh, she was born in Germany in 1912. And in her interview with DU's Dance Library, she describes living in Germany when Hitler came to power. Uh, the audio quality isn't great here, but I wanted to, to hear her voice. Right away, we learned that to disagree with Hitler was to invite job losses, beatings on the street, jail or worse. To disagree with Hitler was to invite, uh, at best, job losses, at worst, beatings or jail. Her husband was Jewish, and so they wanted to leave Germany, and she eventually got a scholarship to study at DU, which brought them to Colorado. Uh, What effect did her arrival in Colorado have on, on her dancing career? So she worked quite a bit with Hanya Holm, who was um, teaching in Colorado Springs during the summers at the time. And Vera actually had connected with Hanya in Germany um, during both when both of them were there before they left before the war. Um, And so Hanya was a teaching for uh, another really well-known German modern dancer named Mary Wiegmann. And uh, so you see dance is very much about lineage, um, who hmm. your teacher was, and then again, that kind of embodied oral history that happens through teaching. Um, and so much of her connections, uh, Vera's connections here, um, were to people like Lillian and Friedan. Uh, the dance community here is very, very small. And even though you might think, oh, you know, ballet people don't connect with modern dancers. They absolutely do. And uh, so Vera, uh, Vera's story um, is very much about her time in Germany, but also about her impact on the University of Denver. A lot of people don't know Dee used to have a dance department, and she was the director of it for quite some time. And her husband, Edwin, actually worked in the DU Law School and later was a lawyer um, during the Nuremberg trials. During the Nuremberg, so they mm-hmm. went back to Germany. They did. Mm. He did not really want to, but um, they persuaded him to. I see. Uh, what legacy do you think she left on the dance scene? So she, um, again, a lot of the modern dancers who came out of Colorado, uh, Lillian and Friedan actually met at the university. Um, so, And they worked with Vera quite a bit. That's how they met. So you might trace the start of Colorado Ballet to Vera. Would to, you say that? Vera to some Sears? degree. Definitely to the University of Denver's dance department, because I don't know that they would have met otherwise. This dance library highlights a number of genres. So performance dance like ballet and modern, social dance, flamenco. Mm-hmm. You have costumes from a former USO majorette who lived and taught in Colorado. Uh, what would you say makes the dance scene in this part of the country distinct? So uh, Colorado 
for a very, very long time has been kind of a destination for dancers. Um, Vail International Dance Festival is a great example of that. Perry Mansfield is one of the Sorry, not one of the oldest dance camp, performing arts camp in the nation. These are sort of seasonal events. Mm-hmm. So this, I mean, this part of the country is where people come from places like New York and L.A. to really create, to immerse themselves in the mountains and in nature and to really make art in a in a kind of space that's primed for reflection, really. Oh, so we are something of a destination that inspires creativity, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. The department's largest collection is the Lloyd Shaw Foundation Dance Archives, which contains more than 700 boxes of folk dance photographs, books, costumes. Lloyd Shaw lived in Colorado Springs, had a ton of material, and I understand it it arrived in an interesting format at your door. So um, it's one of the few collections that it's the only collection I know of where I've actually heard it measured in literal tons. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, according to Glenn Giffen, who was the curator at the time, the collection was totaled about 11 tons because it's not just um, things like original audio recordings. It's also, you know, the newsletters from every almost every single Square Dance Federation in the U.S. and internationally. It's books. It's um, costumes. It's like there's a bass drum in there. There's all kinds of stuff. So it was really the Lloyd Shaw Foundation's working library because they Lloyd Shaw as a person really has he was like a square dance evangelist almost like he wanted to make America love square dance and the foundation really wanted to carry on his legacy there. It's a picture of DU's Carson Briarley Giffen Dance Library, and we spoke with its curator, Catherine Crow. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. You can see photos from this collection at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The hugely successful film The Big Sick recently took on the culture clash between Western ideas about love and Eastern traditions around arranged marriage. Well, a New York Times best-selling novel for young adults takes another tack. When Dimple Met Rishi is by Sanja Menon of Monument, and I spoke with her about the book in July. And Sandhya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. So Dimple is an ambitious young woman. She's headed to Stanford, and she learns that her parents have picked out a potential husband, Rishi. Uh, This is a book for teens. Why take on arranged marriage, which is an idea that's, you know, really foreign to uh, many in America. Yeah. So I think that arranged marriage gets a pretty bad rap here in America and in a lot of Western countries. Um, And it's typically portrayed as like this creepy older guy with a much younger woman, you know, kind of forced together. And um, growing up in India myself, a lot of my older relatives are in arranged marriages. And that was not the reality for me at all. Um, I saw, you know, parents taking a lot of care to put these two well-matched people together. Well-matched as well in age, you're saying? Yeah, well in age and, you know, um, careers and studies and uh, all that kind of stuff, height even. And um, I just wanted to portray something a little bit different. And I thought a romantic comedy would be a hilarious and just goofy, you know, um, stage for that kind of 
thing, yeah. Now, let me say that it's not that the parents are necessarily obligating these young people to marry. Right. It's more of a strong suggestion, <laughs> a, a hope that, that there will be a spark. That's uh, right. Are you... Uh, at all in an arranged relationship? <laughs> Did your parents try to arrange yours? Uh, no, I preempted them. And okay. <laughs> <laughs> I got married very young um, to my husband, who's a white Southern boy. <laughs> so not at all an arranged marriage. And in fact, nobody was too thrilled. But it all worked out. So we've been married 15 years now. <laughs> you, cut, you cut your parents off at the pass. In I did. <laughs> uh, Dimple, this young woman, is appalled mm. that her parents were trying to set her up. Yes. Um, but the young man, Rishi, is, is mm. open to the idea. Why set it up that way? So I think I wanted to turn the kind of um, gender-based rule, I guess, that I see a lot, that women are really into weddings and marriage and just want to land that hunky man. And then men are more like about independence and career. And I wanted to flip that gender role and make the woman more ambitious and independent and the man more romantic. Have you seen in real life in your own relationships that play out where the woman is less interested in marriage? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that a lot. Yeah. And I even me, I wasn't, you know, really into marriage. And that's why I think it surprised everybody that I got married so young. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. No one expected that that would be the case. No. <laughs> um, your parents brought you to the United States from Mumbai, India, when you were 15, I understand. That's right. Um, how much of what you write in this book comes from personal experience? Because it's it's very much a book about culture beyond arranged marriage, right. about foods mm-hmm. and a traditional dress. Yeah. Um, a lot of it comes from my personal experience. Um, as far as Dimple goes, she's very fierce and independent, and her parents don't understand that. That was definitely me. And oh. on Rishi's side, um, he is struggling to pursue his art because his parents tell him that's not a real career. And that was definitely something I struggled with as well with writing. How do you uh, think your parents feel about your writing career now? (laughs) I think now that it's accepted to a point, although when I hit the New York Times list, my family back home was not very happy because they think mothers should stay home and writing is a hobby, you know, and it's getting a little too successful. (laughs) So I definitely still deal with that, although it's much easier now as an adult than a teen. (laughs) Wow. My mouth is agape at this moment. I didn't expect that is how the sentence would end. When I hit the New York Times bestseller list, they were upset. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Sanja Menon, writer from Monument, Colorado. Her new young adult novel is called When Dimple Met Rishi. And I appreciated how much, I think, Hindi vocabulary you use. You often put it in italics and sort of help the reader understand what it means contextually. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a heavy eyeliner that Dimple's mom (laughs) wishes her daughter would wear called Kajal. 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 Yes. Okay. I'm glad you're here to to set me straight. No problem. And then the terms, is it Sasural? Sasural, yeah. Which is the bridal home that a young married woman joins. Mm -hmm. And then there was a food I was unfamiliar with, idli cakes? Idli, yeah. So um, idli is like this little uh, rice cake. It's just like a white circular And people usually eat it um, with chutney. It's very popular in the South. And um, although Dimple's parents are not from the South, my parents are. And so I just wanted to put that in there. (laughs) To use that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Apparently, kajal is like a new fashion. I Googled it. Yeah. And there are articles now in beauty magazines about (laughs) using this eyeliner, which there is such tension about between Mm -hmm. uh, Dimple and her mother. Right. 
Yeah. Uh, they, you know, when I was growing up myself, um, they used to come in these little pots. And my mom was always on us before anything, you know, put on your kaja. You know, you don't look um, feminine enough without it. And so I just had to put that in there. <laughs> okay. Well, it turns out it might be cool. It now, I know. Okay. It's retro now. <laughs> I understand that you're a big fan, Asenja Menon, of the Indian mo- movies known as Bollywood. Yes. And at one point, Dimple's friend says to the couple, Dimple and Rishi, you guys are like Raj and Simran, (laughs) uh, which is apparently a familiar reference to the 90s Bollywood hit. Uh, Maybe you can pronounce the title. I'll call Mm -hmm. it DDLJ. Yes. So that's... (laughs) This is the trailer. I love it. (laughs) What is DG... Tell us about this. So it's Dilwali Dulhania Le Jayenge. And yes, it's it's about as famous as, I guess, like The Princess Bride. Um, ah. Yeah, so it's just iconic. So I had to put it in there. You had to put it in. <laughs> do you think that your book is at all like a Bollywood film? I do think so. I think that it has the, you know, optimistic love will conquer all message that a lot of Bollywood films have. And also the very heavy family element. I love uh, the subplot, really, of tech in this book. So uh, both Dimple and Rishi are involved in a summer program, uh, a kind of hacker's summer program, and Rishi's a little less into it, perhaps, than Dimple <laughs> is. But um, talk about this this like tech subplot and why it's there. Yeah, so I think that we see um, not enough STEM YA heroines. And, so STEM um, is science, technology, engineering, and math. Right. And YA, young adults. You yes. don't think there's enough STEM in YA <laughs> no. with all this lingo. I know. <laughs> you don't think that story is told enough? No, I don't. I think that we need more uh, girls, strong girls in YA that are into STEM. Um, because especially now, I think there's a huge push for girls in America to join the STEM kind of industry. To be a part of coding, for instance. Exactly. And... Um, um, to see themselves represented, I think, in literature, too, is very important. Uh, the relationship between uh, Dimple and her mother is 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 really lovely because it is tense, but mm-hmm. it's also loving. You, you yeah. can tell that they right. love one another. Uh, did your own mother look at the relationship between your character and her mother and think... What's going on here? <laughs> well, I will I will say that it just came out in India, so um, my parents have not read it yet. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so, um, but I, I think that that characterization of the mother-daughter relationship is very common, and it's uh, in Indian families, and it's not, it's not just unique to my own. Um, a lot of my friends had their mothers were these overbearing, controlling people. But at the same time, it came from this huge wellspring of love and adoration and wanting your daughter to succeed at all costs. And um, Dimple's mom can't like see that Dimple might be happy with a career. She sees like you have to get married and you have to have kids to be happy. And I think a lot of tension exists in that kind of relationship, even, you know, even with just your average Indian American family here in the U.S., you save your most unflattering portrayal for uh, a character named Harry, who is at this kind of coding summer camp, mm-hmm. who who himself, I think, is of Southeast Asian descent. Southeast. He's Indian. Yeah. He's Indian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell us about this this character, Harry. Yeah. So they call him Harry. It's actually pronounced Huddy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that um, there was it's very it was very important 
to me to portray someone from Indian descent who kind of has rejected their culture. Because I think that's something a lot of people in the diaspora deal with is like you either you go through this phase where you either um you know, kind of embrace your minority culture, you reject it. And when you reject it, oftentimes you don't want to be reminded by other people that you belong to that minority culture. And that's where Hari was coming from. I think he just had a lot of self-loathing that he hadn't dealt with yet. And I felt that it was just very important to portray that side of prejudice too. Interesting. So that uh, the prejudice they face, sometimes in this book, comes from white people. Right. Uh, but you thought it was important to say that that can come from your your own community. Community, absolutely. Did yeah. you feel that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think there's even a hierarchy. Like when I moved here with my parents, um, people who had been here for a long a long time were sort of higher up in the hierarchy than huh. my fresh off the boat parents and me. You know, and um, so I definitely dealt with that too. Yeah. That is Sandhya Menon of Monument. We talked about her book for young adults called When Dimple Met Rishi. Her next book is due out in June, and the first chapter was just published online. Search for From Twinkle with Love. From Twinkle with Love. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.